Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential work of New Testament scholarship. I'm joined today by Shane Gormley of Loyola University Chicago, and we're discussing John H. Eliot's The Rehabilitation of an Exegetical Stepchild, First Peter in Recent Research. Welcome, Shane. Hello, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. Shane, who are you? I'm Shane. I'm a PhD candidate at Loyola University in Chicago. I'm studying First Peter as I finish up my dissertation, studying with Edmondo Lupieri at Loyola, along with Troy Martin, who is one of the experts on First Peter these days. So, Shane, what's this article about? This article is about John Eliot letting everyone know that First Peter has been neglected for too long and that people need to pay more attention to it. And in the course of making this argument, uh, Eliot's going to talk about Petrine versus Pauline communities. He's going to talk about persecution, all sorts of interesting subjects that we'll touch on as we go. Now, when new PhD students came to Duke or when people were interviewing, or even to this day when I meet people at SBL, sometimes New Testament scholars are, will ask, so what do you work on? Are you Gospels or are you Paul? As if Gospels and Paul represent the two halves of the New Testament. And Eliot's, you know, right. basic point here is that there's actually more to the New Testament. And his special corner of the New Testament that he would like more people to pay attention to is, of course, First Peter. To judge from appearance, First Peter suffers from second-class status in the estimation of modern New Testament exegetes. Along with other relatively neglected documents, such as the remaining Catholic epistles, it is generally treated as one of the stepchildren of the New Testament canon. So, uh, he's just pointing out that people like me often, and as you'll notice, there hasn't been a single episode dedicated to 1 Peter. So people like me and Laura tend to neglect 1 Peter. It might also be worth pausing sort of at the beginning here to recognize that we're reading and analyzing an article with what we might recognize has an unfortunate title. Uh, it's an exegetical stepchild, uh, as Eliot calls it, which assumes a derogatory connotation with the word stepchild, as though stepchildren are neglected, ill-favored, or less than. He at one point refers to First Peter's benign neglect and the bias that is shown toward other children. My wife and her three sisters have a great stepfather, um, I myself don't have step-parents. I don't think anyone is unaware of what the essay title is attempting to communicate, but it might have the effect of reproducing some inaccurate and unnecessary stereotypes about both stepchildren and step-parents. It's therefore an unfortunate title, and perhaps one that need not stand the test of time. Eliot's 1976 essay is how I typically refer to it, but the title has been picked up by others since Eliot's original title. There's an essay about it being a rhetorical stepchild and a theological stepchild as well, but we might do well to steer away from such labels today as well. I think that's an extremely important point, and I'm shocked, honestly, that it had never occurred to me before talking to you, Shane, about that. Um, and you read this first sentence, the very first, the opening lines, and he glosses stepchild with second-class citizen. So it's not just that stepchildren, he's implying, are neglected by stepparents, but that stepchildren are even 
second class citizens in their own family i this this mm-hmm. i think is something we we can do better than yes yes at the same time this essay has stood the test of time itself jennifer bird in her dissertation called Eliot's article a clarion call for further engagement, and the proof was in the pudding. There was plenty of work done on First Peter following the work of John Eliot here, and John Eliot first among them. Every single dissertation that you see out there on First Peter, and many, many monographs and articles today still refer back to Eliot's 1976 essay and either remark that it was a clarion call, as Jennifer Bird does, or they say First Peter is no longer an exegetical stepchild, or they say it's still having this status uh, with regard to this one specific issue that I'm going to dig into today. So this article lives on. Uh, and it still becomes a talking point or a, a way to start your next chapter in your dissertation or or the preface to your dissertation in some way. Yeah, this is the article that everybody cites, and that's why it's getting covered on the New Testament Review podcast. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean we think this is the best article to cite, the first article everyone should read. It is an influential article, and we will hopefully, at the end of our episode today, discuss some of the reception of Eliot's piece and different directions in the study of First Peter that have developed in the last 50 years now. Eliot says explicitly that the occasion for writing this article was the re-edition, the third re-edition, of an important commentary on First Peter. So Shane, what do we need to know about Francis Wright Beer's commentary to understand what Eliot's doing here? Francis Wright Beer's commentary was one of the first commentaries, actually the first commentary, to present to the English-speaking world the theory, the hypothesis, that First Peter was pseudepigraphical. Beer's commentary was published three times, three different editions, first in 1947, then again in 1958 and 1970. The thing about the second and the third editions was that they were basically photographic copies of the first edition with a few minor alterations to the first edition. And he mentions this himself in the commentary. So in the preface, he mentions, I don't really have any reason to change my mind on anything that I've written. The third edition in 1970, to which Eliot is specifically responding, does say there are a few textual discoveries that we should keep in mind as we continue reading through First Peter, and I've added a 20-page supplement to the end of this commentary, but otherwise the text remains pretty much unchanged. So Eliot in this piece is not making the argument that First Peter is a pseudepigraph. He's not going to make the argument that Peter didn't write First Peter. He's taking that as given, and the controversies with which he's going to engage are all premised on that assumption. So we're not going to make that argument today either way. The conversations we're having are mostly premised on that being the case. If you're interested in that subject, I might point you to episode 7 of the New Testament Review podcast, where we covered Adele Yarborough-Collins' work on the Apocalypse of John and talked about how the term Babylon as a way to refer to Rome, something that also appears throughout 1 Peter, is something that really only makes sense after 70 CE, after the destruction of the temple. Another piece of evidence sometimes cited in support of Petrine pseudepigraphy, the idea that this wasn't written by Peter, is 
the use of Paul, the, the close relationship this letter seems to show to the vocabulary, the theology of Paul's letters. And while Eliot is not arguing for pseudepigraphy on the basis of this, uh, this is something that Eliot is very interested in. In fact, uh, Eliot talks about wanting to liberate Peter from the constraints of viewing this always and only and forever as a just a derivative Pauline work. He's going to argue that this is something that emerges from a distinctively Petrine school, not a Pauline text. So let's, let's talk about that. What does Eliot have to say about the relationship of this text to Paul? Yes, as I mentioned, Beer includes this supplement to his commentary. And one of the things that he focuses on is the way in which we might be able to think even more concretely about the way in which Peter depends on Paul. We can see these literary affinities. We can see this common terminology. We can even postulate ways in which they might be doing similar things, First Peter and Paul. What Eliot wants to make sure we understand, though, is that Beer, in his mind, hasn't made his case. At the bottom of one page, uh, 246 here, he says, Beer has noted affinity, but he has not proved dependence. So there's a long-standing opinion, according to Beer and many others, that First Peter looks very Pauline, that it looks like a Pauline epistle for many different reasons, both in terms of content, its form, even its style in many ways. But Eliot wants to show that we need not think of it that way. We can, as Eliot says, and as you alluded to, Ian, liberate First Peter from its Pauline bondage. What Eliot specifically wants to suggest is that First Peter is the product of a Petrine tradition transmitted by Petrine tradents of a Petrine circle. He actually doesn't get too far into it specifically in this essay. He will actually use this as a launching pad for further essays, articles, monographs, and eventually his commentary to establish this hypothesis of a Petrine school that was at work in Rome that derived in some way from the Apostle Peter that represents the Petrine articulation of the gospel and that saw its duty to be the preservation of that Petrine flavor of Christianity. So in response to what Eliot understands as an overemphasis of the Pauline-ness of First Peter, Eliot argues, or in fact he kind of asserts with some citations, that recent scholarship on form and tradition criticism undermine many of the arguments for dependence on Paul. So Eliot's argument, um, as much as there, there is an argument, is that the things that people point to, to argue that First Peter is using Paul, and we're going to explain what some of those are in a second here, more likely come from just the way preaching happened in the first century. More likely emerge from shared liturgical traditions between Pauline and Petrine circles. So when we see a particular phrase showing up in 1 Thessalonians and Romans and repeated almost verbatim in 1 Peter. I'll get there in a second. When we see that, we shouldn't think, oh, 1 Peter is reading Paul, as some of Eliot's predecessors have argued. We should rather say, oh, 1 Peter and Paul share a common liturgical tradition. So this is one of the things that Eliot is claiming is a development since Beer first wrote his commentary that undermined some of Beer's arguments 
And he's saying Beer failed to incorporate this in his recent commentary. And if he had, he would have seen that, yes, there are some affinities between 1 Peter and Paul, but 1 Peter is by no means dependent on Paul. It is its own work emerging from its own intellectual circle. So we like to summarize uh, the position of the article we're talking about before we go on to critique, but sometimes you can't help but put something in right in the middle. So David Horrell uh, wrote this very interesting article called The Product of a Petrine Circle, A Reassessment of the Origin and Character of 1 Peter, in which, in part, he takes on the issue of the relationship between 1 Peter and Paul. And he gives a number of arguments for dependence, for something more than what Eliot calls affinity. Um, and I'm just going to pick my favorite two. One is that this phrase, in Christ, which shows up throughout uh, Paul's letters. Um, you can go listen to our E.P. Sanders episode on participation, uh, so the salvation by participation in Christ. This is a really weird phrase, in plus ostensibly a name, or at least a title, but a title that's done in for a name, um, is a really weird phrase. Uh, it doesn't show up, like, you, it's hard to find parallels in, you know, constructions outside of the New Testament. And in fact, you don't find that phrase used anywhere else in the New Testament, except a ton in Paul and three times in 1 Peter. So this, Harrell suggests, is good evidence that we have here someone who is reading Paul um, and taking over one of Paul's primary distinctive theological emphases. Likewise, Harrell points out that the phrase returning evil for evil uh, is something that shows up twice uh, with a particular phrasing, a particular construction, shows up twice in Paul in Romans uh, and in 1 Thessalonians, and shows up almost the exact same way in 1 Peter. But again, while it is certain, you know, a certain genealogy going back to the Sermon on the Mount, probably, um, it, it is a certain reflection of the teachings of Jesus. That particular phrasing, that particular way of constructing it, doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament, uh, except for twice in Paul and exact same way in First Peter. So I don't follow Eliot here. I think actually dependence is a great term to use to characterize what First Peter is doing with respect to Paul. One of the other things that Horrell is very good at identifying is the way in which First Peter isn't limited to what we find in Paul as well. And it's not that people have thought we're limited to Paul when we see First Peter, but the tendency that they have adopted to read Peter in light of Paul has led them to see all of First Peter through the lens of Paul. So you just pointed out, Ian, that there are Pauline phrases and Pauline language in 1 Peter. And that's not something that we need to be scared of or be worried about betraying uh, a relationship between 1 Peter and Pauline literature. That doesn't make 1 Peter any less distinctive or maybe unique or uh, a part of the dynamicism of early Christianity. What Horrell also goes in to look at are the different traditions, the surplus of different traditions that are present within 1 Peter, which is why some scholars have called 1 Peter an epistle of tradition. So one of the specific traditions that Horrell talks about is the Christological interpretation of Isaiah 53. He goes on in an essay a few years later about the passion narrative as remembered in 1 Peter to talk more and more about the distinctive way that 1 Peter is remembering Jesus' passion using the words of Isaiah. Horrell points out that this is what Goodacre calls the scripturalization of history. 
And there are many ways that we can see First Peter taking on the traditions, adopting the traditions that First Peter has available to it in order to mold them and shape them and adapt them to its purposes. So, yes, First Peter is, quote unquote, Pauline, but First Peter is also early Christian in a number of different ways. It's also distinctive because it's taking on and adapting these traditions to its own purposes, to its own ends, for the sake of its own audiences as well. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, to acknowledge that one text depends on another does not mean denying its theological distinctiveness. Heck, I work on the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew depended on Mark. But Matthew is doing something very different and very interesting when he is reusing, reworking Mark. I think we can appreciate what Elliot's trying to say, that dependence on Paul doesn't mean viewing this as just a sort of rehashing of Paul. Horrell and others talk about how uh, even where First Peter is adapting Paul, it's doing interesting things with that. And a great example of that, I would love to point you all to, is my former colleague, Father Adam Booth, has a brand new article uh, out in the Journal of Biblical Literature and JBL on the way First Peter reworks the imitation of Christ language and theology found in Paul's epistles. Um, and this is a brilliant illustration of that, how First Peter is doing something new, interesting, theologically innovative with Pauline motifs. So I think, Shane, you and I are on the same page here. I think so. So if we're following Eliot, uh, going back to his argument, uh, we are liberating Peter from Paul, and that's freeing us to see First Peter as a distinctively Petrine work. And that means for him, quote, First Peter is the product of a Petrine tradition transmitted by Petrine tradents of a Petrine circle. So, in some meaningful sense for Eliot, there are a group of people who are can be characterized as Petrine tradents, people with apparently some historical, authentic, genealogical connection to Peter, who are passing along the traditions of Peter. And I can't help but think Papias' tradition about Peter settling in Rome, having certain followers that he passes along his teachings to, have to lie behind this somehow. Shane, can you clarify at all what Eliot's envisioning here? It's not entirely clear from this article itself. We're sort of encountering the nascent ideas that give birth to a lot of other work that Eliot will do. But eventually, Eliot is going to postulate that this circle existed in Rome. And a lot of that is based on evidence that we find, as you just mentioned, from Papias and, and others like him. One of the issues that, again, Horrell raises is that a lot of the evidence that we have eventually finds its way back to First Peter itself. I think for a lot of people, it's almost self-evident that if a work is written in the name of someone and wasn't written by that person, then it must be somehow connected to that person through genealogy. And you find these kinds of arguments showing up in people like Bauckham and other scholars that if something is written in someone's name, there must be a community linked up to that. And there are all sorts of analogies for this. Uh, the Johannine literature that unites the Gospel of John with the Apocalypse of John with the, with the Johannine epistles. People talk about Thomasine schools of Gnosticism that unite the Acts of Thomas with the Gospel of Thomas with other texts that mention Thomas. This was a whole way of doing scholarship, uh, trajectories scholarship that f took names and used those to reconstruct 
sort of schools that may or may not have gone back to a historical figure or sometimes just used a traditional figure as their sort of calling card. And frankly, this seems to me just obviously wrong. There were lots of different people, different kinds of people, people who didn't get along, who all claimed Socrates, who all wrote about Socrates, who all attributed sayings to Socrates. And if we just want to use Peter, look, there's apocalypses of Peter. There are Gnostic texts that speak in the name of Peter. There's all sorts of different kinds of Petrine literature. The mere existence of a Petrine pseudepigraph is not prima facie evidence for a Petrine school. And Harrell, of course, gives other arguments. He points out that there really isn't any independent evidence outside of 1 Peter that such a school existed. Nobody really talks about this. Uh, and he's quoting some older German scholarship uh, that if the name Peter was removed from this epistle, we'd have no idea this was written by Peter. There's nothing in the letter, if you don't have that name, to suggest that this is written by the disciple of Jesus. So if the Petrine school is supposed to suggest some authentic connection to the historical Peter who walked and talked with Jesus, there's really nothing in the letter to suggest that other than the ascription itself. There are plenty of good reasons that we can think of to attach Peter's name to a text like this without needing to postulate the idea of a Petrine school. Troy Martin has an essay arguing that Peter's name provides apostolic legitimization for the communities that are being addressed, because these are communities that were not addressed by the Jerusalem letter of Acts 15. That's just one reason that Troy can put forward to be able to argue that. In my dissertation, I'm arguing that Peter's name makes sense because First Peter is summoning its audiences to a form of discipleship. Who better to summon them to discipleship than a paradigm of discipleship himself, Peter the Apostle? First Peter itself is concerned, first and foremost, with its audience's suffering. The early church saw plenty of traditions that highlighted, emphasized, and lauded Peter's example of suffering. What better name to attach to an epistle concerned with suffering than the apostle who was thought to have suffered the most? Absolutely. There's lots of reasons why Peter, the most prominent of Jesus' disciples in the synoptics, might be the person you appeal to. And lots of people throughout history, Gospel of Peter, Apocalypse of Peter, Prayer of Peter, have thought Peter would be a really great person to ascribe their teachings to. Going back into Eliot's argument, his Petrine school is situated, quite naturally perhaps, in Rome. This is where Papias says Peter uh, employed his followers to put together the Gospel of Mark. We see other associations of Peter with Rome, most famously perhaps the Acts of Peter, which describe Peter's coming to Rome, his conflict with Simon Magus, and his eventual martyrdom. There are these great second century traditions that place Peter solidly in Rome. And so, of course, Eliot, who wants this letter to stand in genuine historical continuity with the teachings and personality of Peter, to place this letter as being written out of Rome. And indeed, there is some things in the text that might suggest this. Babylon, uh, as we mentioned earlier, as a name for Rome, and the letter itself suggests that Peter is writing from there. And so even scholars who acknowledge 1 Peter as pseudepigraphical have for a long time believed that this text was written in a Roman context. It is a widely held position that 1 Peter was written from Rome to the communities undergoing suffering in Asia Minor. Widely held position. 
Beer, in the first and second edition of his commentary, specifically said that it wasn't written in Rome, but in Asia Minor. Specifically, he writes this. He says, Rome is mentioned as the place of writing only because St. Peter is put forward as the writer. It actually seemed plausible, accordingly, that it was written in the area to which it is addressed by a presbyter of the region who knew firsthand the suffering of his flock. So Beer took a position that as a pseudepigraphical letter, this was written within the community and for the community. In the supplement to his third edition, 20 pages at the end of the commentary, Beer announces that he's changed his mind, and he lists two reasons that are very detailed and have to do with liturgical ideas and liturgical uses of the text to which he thought it was being put to. They all lead him now to assume a Roman provenance. Now, as someone myself who holds to a Asia Minor provenance for First Peter in my dissertation, there was a decent amount of time that I took beer to be on my side and a good source of support for my position. Because we don't read commentaries front to back or cover to cover, usually, it took a little while for me to discover that I was citing an outdated opinion precisely because Beer leaves this point unincorporated into the new edition of his commentary. Roman provenance versus Anatolian provenance might not have too much of an impact on our interpretation of First Peter. It might not have the most impact at all, but it certainly can influence how we read it to some degree. So in my opinion, assuming that the author of 1 Peter is intimately acquainted with the suffering of his audiences, and might even be suffering himself in the same way, presents quite a different dynamic from assuming that 1 Peter originates from a distance. Now, all that's just to say my opinion on where it was written, but I think there are good enough reasons for assuming that it was written within Asia Minor, especially if we assume that it was a pseudepigraphical letter. I think the first point is simply that the most natural way for a pseudepigraphical letter to arise is within the communities to which it's written. Babylon is still able to stand for Rome. It just right. doesn't need to stand specifically for the city of Rome. It stands for Roman imperial power. It also enables us to read First Peter through a postcolonial lens. On the point of Roman imperial power and Rome as Babylon, many readers across time have seen in First Peter evidence of persecution and tried to pin this to, for instance, the Trojanic persecution recorded in the letters of Pliny. And they're reading passages like 1 Peter 4, where we see the author say, Rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. Further on, Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace but glorify God because you bear this name. So suffering as a Christian. This sounds like persecution language, many interpreters have said. And this is where we actually see Eliot make something more like an argument. And he argues that actually dislocation from a homeland, social alienation from contemporary pagans, separation or alienation from other worshippers of the God of Israel, um, from fellow Judeans, that these offer a more plausible background, according to Eliot, for this language of suffering as Christians. That maybe we're not seeing Trajanic persecution here so much as we're seeing it's really hard to be a Christian 
who doesn't get to participate in society or have a long tradition or communities around to support you all the time. The nature of suffering behind First Peter, the specific suffering behind First Peter, has become a source of big debate throughout commentaries and studies. I'd recommend a recent study, a relatively recent study by Travis Williams in the Currents in Biblical Research called Suffering from a Critical Oversight, in which he diagnoses the way that we talk about persecution and suffering according to a false dichotomy. So a lot of what Elliot is getting at here uh, in this article, as you just drew attention to, is the way in which we have gone all the way to think about imperial persecution as lying behind what's happening to these Christians, these Christ followers toward the end of the first century. But Eliot does an excellent job of forming a social profile. We might not agree with everything that he's going to say about that, especially in his larger commentary, but in his social profile of the readers of First Peter, he's going to establish that there's much more happening than just the empire coming in and throwing the Christians to the lions, if that is even happening. Eliot will hold, along with many others, that what these Christians are suffering is the social stigma of being Christians, of behaving in ways that don't accord with Roman social values, of withdrawing from participation in Roman social life. And these are on-the-ground, everyday ways of suffering. So, in summary, Eliot says First Peter is neglected, and part of the reason for that is that it's been often treated as just merely derivative of Pauline literature. And we should instead view this as the product of a distinctively, uniquely Petrine school. Developments in scholarship uh, leading up to his 1976 publication, he says, vindicate this perspective over and against earlier approaches to First Peter. And while it's probably pretty clear that I believe Eliot overstates his argument, I think we can take on board some of the things he's saying. As Horrell does really effectively, we can accept that this is dependent on Pauline literature, while simultaneously recognizing the distinctive work it's doing. We don't have to believe in a Petrine community, a Petrine school, uh, with an authentic connection to the historical Peter, in order to recognize that this author is using First Peter, and using the figure of Peter specifically for theological, ideological reasons. So we can embrace some of Eliot's clarion call without accepting specific arguments of his. One of the things that I take away from this essay is when we think of Journal of Biblical Literature articles, we often think of long essays that make an argument. That's not exactly what we have here. We have a state of the question essay. And yet, while it appears to be a state-of-the-question essay, it does a lot. Eliot ends up utilizing the space here to put forward nascent ideas of his own that would eventually form the trajectory of his own scholarly career. After discussing the relationship between First Peter and its sources and the air it breathes and how it relates to Paul, he goes on to suggest that we might think about a Petrine school. And that's what will be a fundamental part of Eliot's scholarship going forward, inscribed most of all in his 2000 Anchor Yale Bible Commentary. After discussing the nature and purpose of First Peter, Eliot cites the emerging consensus that eventually comes to dominate the field, that it is a genuine letter 
constructed and distributed as such, and this is an integral part of Eliot's work going forward as well. As Ian mentioned as well, this idea of persecution and the social ramifications of becoming a Christian, all of this also features into Eliot's probably most famous work, Home for the Homeless, which comes out just about five years after this essay is published. So Eliot's essay, even as a state of the question essay, is full of ideas and possibilities. And I think there's two important takeaways from that. The first is the importance and creativity that states of the question can offer. Tom Tobin, one of our professors at Loyola, who sadly passed away a few years ago, used to tell us that we should think of the states of the question like this. Imagine that you're telling a story and that your dissertation or your project is the climax of that story. And I've always valued that. Eliot's 1976 essay is like a prelude to the entire career in Petrine scholarship that he went on to pursue. It testifies to the immense value of knowing where we've been and how that can set us up either on the right path or on a new one. This is exactly how my dissertation got started, seeing a specific gap or a lack of arguments about my topic, and I decided to step up. Second, the task and nature of writing commentaries also comes to mind. There's plenty of discourse on this lately. Do we need more commentaries? Do we need another series of commentaries? And I enjoy recommending books to my students as much as the next teacher, but we can rightly recognize that our shelves can only hold so many books. But in recommending commentaries to my students or in choosing one for myself, I always have to ask myself, what is this commentary going to give me? With Paul's letters, especially Romans and Galatians, the question usually is raised, which perspective on Paul am I getting? With First Peter, things are maybe a little more subtle, but there are still good questions of our commentaries that we should ask. Is this commentary one scholar's take and perspective on First Peter? Am I getting an overview of various approaches and solutions to the text's questions? But in either case, will the author or scholar be consistent across the whole of the commentary? Is there a perspective or approach that at least unifies the commentary and will help me walk away with a unified picture of the text that I'm trying to understand? One isn't necessarily better than the other, but it's worth recognizing that they're two different things. Eliot, in this essay, is specifically interested in Beer's commentary and its inattention to recent scholarship, but specifically because he thought it could do better by being more well-informed. I think as we continue writing commentaries, well, as others continue writing commentaries, we also continue taking stock of how commentaries function within the academy and the classroom and the church and how they can be self-aware of what they're intending to do. Shane, thank you so much for bringing your expertise on First Peter here uh, to discuss this article with us. I really appreciate you co-hosting this with me. Can you tell us a little more about your project before you sign off? Ian, thanks so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I would be thrilled to tell you about this project that I've been working for a very long time on, and I'm very happy to see it coming to fruition. I've been looking at First Peter specifically through two lenses. I look at First Peter through the lens of ancient education, and through modern social identity theory. So I found through reading a number of commentaries during comps that people said, first Peter talks about discipleship when it says follow in Christ's footsteps, but they didn't have anything else to say about it. And so one of the things that I decided to look into is could that be substantiated? And I found that I felt confident enough to make an argument that all of first Peter itself could be read as a call or summons to discipleship. 
in accord with ancient standards of education. So I read First Peter as a call or summons to discipleship as calling them to embody the social role of disciples in relationship to Christ. And so through that and through social identity theory, I'm able to argue that First Peter presents a way that they can cope with their suffering and move forward as loyal disciples of Christ. Well, I'm glad there are people who don't do either gospel half of the New Testament or the Paul half of the New Testament, but do that third half in which First Peter lies. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for sharing your expertise and your scholarship with us. Um, I hope we'll have you back sometime soon. Really appreciate it, Ian. Thank you. Please stop.